got stocked up in all the water. Uh, Romans, uh, we're going to read in chapter 9. We're starting chapter 10 today. We're going to start reading chapter 9. I know. Father, you're worth it. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Okay. You guys ready to roll? I'm really, I'm really grateful for the sensitivity of our worship team uh, this morning and, uh, and the invitation for you guys to come and, and, and pray. And just know, you know, I think a lot of times we have this misconception that the invitation in a message, uh, the invitation in a service is intended for someone else. Something, someone who's got some sort of egregious thing that they've got to, that they've got to un- unshackle themselves from and and you know what? Uh, the altar is for any person who loves the Lord. Uh, the altar is for any person who recognizes that they have something yet to give up. And that's all of us. And there shouldn't be any of us who see uh, the invitation during a service as a thing that is the, um, uh, I guess, the exception. Yeah? In many regards, I think that, that uh, the altar um, is, should be the norm. The invitation should be the norm. And the exception should be you saying, oh, cool, I'm good this week. <laughs> that should be the exception, right? You guys with me? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that uh, invitation, Uriah, and I'm, I'm thankful for those of you who have the boldness to come forward and, uh, and pray to the Lord and ask for his help. Um, now, let's get, let's get into uh, the study, shall we? So Romans, we've been in Romans. It's been one year since we've started Romans. Can you believe that? It's been, it's been a year. We started Romans when I first came into Kaya. And uh, we're as far as chapter 10 this week. And, and, and chapter 9, we took some time there. And uh, I recognize the need to take some time there because there's so many misconceptions concerning that chapter. So I, I thought it was right. I thought it was like the Lord was telling me that we needed to spend some time there and be very thorough. For those of you who have questions about chapter 9, I invite you to go back and listen to those messages. But just to give you a brief overview of what we've studied so far... Um, the first cha- uh, series of chapters, chapters 1 through 8, what they do is they establish for us in Romans uh, this letter that Paul has written to the early church, okay, the, the, the church in Rome, where there's a real mixture. It's a very uh, me- uh, metropolitan city. And so you have lots of different cultures, lots of different religious backgrounds coming and clashing together, and all of them are coming to meet on this common ground that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are people that have come to know Jesus and yet still have not come to grips with what that means, what all the things that that implies in terms of their daily lifestyle and how they should begin to see and treat other people who also are calling themselves by the name Christian. And so you have Jews and you have Gentiles, the Jewish people, the people of the religious tradition, the people that that grew up with uh, Jehovah on their lips, uh, the the more spiritual people who've come to know Christ. And then you have the Gentiles, the people who have no background or knowledge of God, the people who have been serving false idols for, for millennia, and they're finally coming together on the terms of the gospel, and there's a lot to work through. And those first eight chapters, what they do is they lay out what an individual faith looks like. They, they show us what it means to follow Christ and all of the blessings, the residual blessings of knowing Christ and living a lifestyle of repentance. You guys with me? Okay. And, and so we spent a lot of time there. Again, those messages are available to you. And then in chapter 9, we began talking about this, this, this relationship that God has with the nation of Israel. Because the Jewish believers had a lot of questions about what uh, salvation implied for the Jewish people. The fear was, God, have you forgotten your people? God, have you forgotten your plan for the nation of Israel? And so Paul takes some time to 
camp out here in the next few chapters to spell out what God's plan actually is for the nation of Israel. And what we've learned in weeks previous is that chapter 9 is about what God did. How God, God worked to establish a nation of Israel, beginning with the faith of Abraham and, and generation after generation, preserving a work in a group of people that were intended to magnify God's name in the whole world. They were the light post. They were the light in a, in a dark world. They were the ones who were supposed to show the whole world what it meant to repent and follow God. And they did that through their laws. And chapter 9, oh, look at that. The enemy at work, once again. Pray for the power on my iPad, by the way. It's, it's, a, it's at 30%. So we'll see. You know? Did you close all your apps? Skinny charger? I need... Listen, you guys. You're asking me to do things. I'm good, I'm good. Um, but, but what we have in chapter 9 is, is this, this... We're getting a glimpse of God's sovereignty as it concerns the nation of Israel. And this idea that his hand of preservation is over them. And he's saying, look, have I ever forgotten you? When they're questioning, hey, God... Have you forgotten us? Is your new plan through Jesus Christ, does that mean that your people have been, that you betrayed your people, the promises, do they no longer belong to us? And, and, and Paul's saying, look, has God ever betrayed you? Has he ever forgotten you or, or left you bef- behind? No, no, no. The issue at hand is that you haven't trusted on Jesus Christ. Is that, is that when, when the rock came, when Jesus Christ came into this world, when the Messiah actually presented himself to you, You didn't accept it. And due to that, there's a blindness in Israel. And for this time, you are going to suffer the repercussions of your own blindness, your own choosing. And that's what chapter 10 is basically about. As we get into chapter 10, what we're we're learning here is what it was. Why is it that Israel rejected? What was it about the Messiah? What was it about the gospel that that they found offensive? And how they can get that right. And there's a message for us too. Because there's many people in this room right now who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is a reason for your rejection. There is something that's gotten in the way that's kept you from entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I had a co-worker this week who, who said these very words. These very words. Yeah, I, I, concerning the gospel. I know that that's true. And I believe it, but... And then a series of excuses why she couldn't follow Christ. I mean, those very words. And how is it that you can have all of the truth and yet still reject it? It's a pretty amazing thing, but it's a thing that's true in this world. And we're going to address that today. Okay? And so today's message is called Israel's Present Rejection. Israel's Present Rejection. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. In the very first verse, are you ready? We're going to focus, first of all, on Israel's misplaced zeal. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God, uh, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul, his heart is that the nation of Israel would come to a place of repentance. Which means he believes that it could be so. He's, his hope in the Lord is that his people, the nation that he comes from, will one day come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And we see this, this is kind of a repetition of what we see in verse 1 of chapter 9. He says to us in chapter uh, 9, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Why? Why is it that Paul's heart is so heavy? Why is it that he has this sorrow? For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. See, Paul is burdened by the fact that the people that he loves most don't know Christ as their Savior. And so I want to bring this to your attention, because some of us, some of us, we neglect the lost in our life. And it isn't only until moments like this that we remember that people all around us don't know Christ. We don't think about it in our daily life as we're going to work, as we're going to school, we sit down in our classrooms, or we go to work, we're focused on the task at hand, and yet we forget that all around us are living souls that do not know the Lord. And so in a moment like this, the first thing that we think about, and a lot of times we think about this concerning our friends and our family, is the first thing we think about is all the things that they're missing out by not knowing Jesus. And so the first thing that comes to our mind is that we don't get to fellowship with them. Like, think about the people who aren't in this room today. The people that you wish were here right now with us in Kaya, worshiping the Lord, singing unto him. And the first thing that we think about when we think about our lost friends and family is that they don't get to fellowship the way we do. That they're not a part of this family. They don't get... All of the benefits of knowing Christ the way we do. Because this is, to me, this is fun. This is enjoyable. This is a blessing. And then the next thing that we think about is that, man, you know what? Beyond that, we don't get to fellowship with them beyond this life. And so the next thing that comes to our, our mind and our remembrance is, is that we don't get an eternal fellowship with them. That, that when they die, that you won't see them anymore. And that might weigh heavy on your conscience. And you might say, man, that's a hard thing to think about. The idea that, that my friends and my family members, that when this life is over, that I'm not going to be with them. Man, that's heavy. And as we continue, continue down a biblical logic, then we suddenly are faced with the fact that, no, not only are we going to be separated from them, that we don't get to fellowship with them in eternity, but they will be lost to hell for eternity. And our heart grows heavier. As we see it from God's perspective, we begin to see that not only do we not get to spend eternity with them, but they get, they, they get the repercussions of God's justness. That he's beckoned them their whole lives, whether it was 35 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years on this earth, that they had opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. And because they refused him, that eternally they are, they are condemned to torment. And, and I, can't get in, I can't get around this, guys. We live in a world today where Christians refuse hell because it's inconvenient as a doctrine. It's an inconvenient thing to believe. And so we have theologians and scholars and really famous popular men with really popular Instagram and Twitter accounts that are telling us that hell doesn't exist. Well, I'm sorry. I have to, I have to concur with Scripture. That if God says it's so, then it is so. And that there is a place of judgment. And the people that I love... And the people that Christ loves, if they refuse him, that there's a place of torment reserved for them. 
it's inconvenient, but it's true. And it, and it begins to weigh heavy on my heart the way it weighed heavy on Paul's heart. And then lastly, and this is probably the most grievous of all the facts about <coughs> lostness, is that more so than hell and torment, the people that don't know Christ will eternally be separated from Him. That they don't have the benefit of sitting at His feet and knowing Him for eternity. And the one that called them and wooed them, they won't know what it's like to be in a personal, physical relationship with Him for eternity, living and dwelling in light. The pain and suffering will be gone. They won't get to experience that. And so here we are. And we can, what Paul says here in verse 1 resonates with us. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Who is it that you're praying that might be saved today? So this is Paul's perspective of Israel. And he is fully aware of their spiritual state. He knows where they are. And in this chapter, he exposes why they refuse Christ. He exposes all of their reasoning. And the beautiful thing about this chapter is this chapter contains the most clear answer to their problem that exists probably in the entire New Testament. In this chapter, at the end of this passage, what we're faced with is the answer to all of Israel's problems and in kind, the answer to every lost person that you know. So let's begin with their first problem. This problem of misplaced zeal. Verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And does, anybody, does everybody know what the word zeal means? It means fervor. Yeah? It means, it means it's like this ability to, to, to take a concept, okay, and, and focus your attention on it so heavily that your passions follow after that concept. And you live in such a way that you're bolstered to do what you believe or perceive is right. That's what zeal is. And the Israelites were absolutely zealous. And you know, Paul remembers when he was zealous. Paul can relate to the spiritual state of Israel because they are where he once was. A man of zeal, a man of spiritual passions, but not a man of truth. And if you, look, if you look at the testimony, do you guys remember this? I mean, we just spent a few weeks ago, we took a moment in Acts chapter 7, and we looked at Stephen, and, and who was it when they stoned Stephen? Stephen's preaching this message to the Israelites. Who is it that's standing there holding the coats of the people stoning Stephen? But it's Paul, a man of zeal, a man of passion, a man of determination, a man of excellence, a man of knowledge. But not knowledge after Christ. You know, he confesses in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he's telling the Philippians, he's, he's talking about his pedigree. And he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, right? A Jew of all Jews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I was blameless in the law. I followed the commandments of God to a T. I did everything that was expected of me in my religious heritage. And listen to what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, 
Those I counted lost for Christ. See, Paul was full to the brim with qualifications and zeal. And yet when he discovered Christ, he saw them as completely meaningless. And more importantly, he saw them as a liability to his ministry. That his qualifications and his pedigree were actually a hindrance to the foolishness of faith. And so he knows what Israel is going through. You know, Warren Wiersbe, uh, one of my favorite authors, talks about zeal, and he, and he says that it's heat without light. Isn't that great? That it's heat without light. The, the, it's like having the byproduct of truth without the real truth. All that fervor and all that consecration completely misaimed. 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul's speaking to Timothy. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady-minded, are heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And, and this is what I want to get to. And this is what it means to have zeal without truth. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And he, he tells Timothy, from such, turn away. Okay, listen to me. What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to paint for you a picture that the state of the nation of Israel that was and now is presently in 2017 is a people group who are full of zeal for God. Determined, focused, ambitious in their faith. And yet because their, their, their minds aren't intent on truth, are still lost. This parallel parallels the people that you know. The, the people that you know that have the gospel. And the, and the truth is some of you in this room today are religious people. You're full of heat but you don't have the light of truth. And I'm calling you today, I'm calling you to repent of that, to to, to repent of zeal without truth. And here's our key point. Key point number one. Misaimed zeal always leads us to our own forms of godliness, our own self-righteousness. So so zeal without truth, you've got to place that zeal into something. And the truth is, about humanity and about our contemporary society, that usually that zeal is inward focused. In other words, the things that bring you pleasure, the things that, that, that match your personal desires, right? Those are the things that you place your zeal upon. And many of us have found our own God within ourselves. And you know it's true. I don't, I don't have to go round and round about it. I mean, um, Oprah... has propagated this. Rob Bell has propagated this. Many, many people in the religious spotlight today have propagated propagated this idea that you are God. The God is, you are a tiny God. The God is within you. This is what the Mormons believe. Religion after religion believes this. 
And many of us, really, even without any religious heritage at all, we'll just believe it about ourselves because it's the natural result of zeal without truth. And so, and so what we have is we have a form of godliness. We abide by our own expectations, our own desires, our own laws, our own self-righteousness, the one that we've invented, and we live in that and we dwell in that. And anything that comes up against it in terms of truth, we refuse it. Why? Why? For the same reason Israel did. Israel couldn't blame their mis-aim on God because they weren't ignorant of the doctrine of the Messiah. They knew everything about the Messiah. No, they willfully refused him because he got in the way of their form of godliness. So their zeal led them to find righteousness in their prescribed religiosity, the thing that they invented, their own zeals, their own passions, their own truths. They focused on those things. And some of you in this room are doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. You are your own God. And you establish your own righteousness. Verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. See, there's a type of ignorance that, that, that comes from lack of education. right? Some people are just ignorant in this world because no one's taught them. Do you know what I mean? They just don't know. No one's educated them. No one's learned them. Right? But in the case of Israel, as it concerns the Messiah, there was no excuse for them. They were a people with a wealth of knowledge concerning God, and yet denied Him in the flesh. This is just willful ignorance. This is stubbornness. This is what produced in them the hardness of heart and the blindness towards Christ. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. They're, they were blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come into the world, had lived among them, had lived perfectly. All those miracles and all those signs, they were lost on them because they, could, they couldn't see the truth through their own religion. And so the, 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 the byproduct of that was blindness. And, and so what has led them to this path? The answer is the same for Israel as those in our life who are lost. When people establish a worldview that is convenient to their own lifestyle, it is very difficult to disrupt that comfort. Have you, have you recognized that before? That when someone has established a worldview, because you know it takes some time. When you're a kid, you begin doing it. You know what I mean? You do the things that are convenient to you. Um, okay, let me explain it like this. When you're like, uh, I mean, if you're anything like I was as a 10-year-old boy, all I wanted to do was eat pizza, Watch the Ninja Turtles and play my Super Nintendo. Amen? Amen. When I was 10, that's where I was at. And at that time, what I was doing is I was establishing my own self-righteousness. And this is what we do. We do this naturally. What happens is over time, we continue to feed our flesh because that's what the flesh wants to do. And then what we do is we establish worldviews that revolve around me continuing to do what I want to do. And that's how we establish our own self-righteousness. And when truth comes up against that, we resist it. See, this is why it's a work of God 
that people accept Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Because in and of ourselves, without the message, without the truth, without the cutting power of grace, there is no way, there is no possible way that we could ever, ever attain God. There's no way. So the issue here is, listen, listen, Paul tells it to us very plainly in verse 3. The issue is submission. The issue is submission. People hate submission. You know, I, I teach high school, right? And so it's funny, man. Even in the last 10 years, I've seen the student behavior change. And, and you know, some things that you don't really say in the classroom, they're almost like faux pas to say, okay? Like if a student is doing something that I don't want them to do in class, I have to like, it's funny, I feel pressured to like tiptoe around them and like motivate them to do what's right. And you know what I should be able to say? This is what I should be able to say. I should be able to say, as a grown man, okay, 16-year-old boy, I'm twice your age. I should be able to say, you know what you need to do to do right now is you need to obey me. And yet somehow there's this like feeling in the air of the classroom like that would be like way overstepping my boundaries. And so you know what I do? Was I say it anyway. <laughs> you know what you need to do right now is you need to obey what I'm saying because I'm the adult. And you don't have to use your logic to get around it. Because if you don't submit to me, guess what? There's judgment coming. <laughs> There's judgment coming in the form of a write-up. Right? So, But this is my point. We live in a world where the idea of submission is repulsive. That's the world that we live in. And so the idea that uh, Jesus Christ would, would come into my life and, and disrupt what I've got going is repulsive. And so I resist. I resist and I resist. And you know what? Those walls get heavier and harder and taller and wider. And the only thing that can wreck the world of that lost person is the rock of offense. To come and, and to tear it down. And, and we have to have faith for that with even our most lost friends and family members because if we don't have hope in that, man, what a miserable life to not believe that those of our friends and family who don't know Christ can't come to know God. What a miserable life that is to live. I believe that every person can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I believe that with all my heart. Amen. And so did Paul. That's why he speaks the way that he speaks. But the truth is, as far as Israel is concerned, as, as far as, as a nation goes, they, they've refused to submit. And they're going to suffer the repercussions of that in terms of blindness. You know what submission looks like? John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To me, submission seems pretty sweet. To me, if, if I can get beyond myself, submission seems pretty sweet to, to know Jesus Christ and to know him eternally and to have eternal life is only good. And so here's my question to you before we get into verse 4. Here's my question. Are you here this morning knowing that you have tightened your grip on an idea or a passion and it's distracted you from your pursuit of God? What is it that you're so resolved about, so zealous about as it concerns your life that you're not letting Christ in? 
Are you zealous, determined to live out a particular ideal, and in so doing, refusing the possibility that Christ is calling you to submit to him today? What areas of your life have you refused to submit to the Lord? Verse 4, they had misguided allegiances. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. See, Paul's quoting Moses right here. And what he's trying to do is define this idea of righteousness as it concerns the law. It's a, it's a quotation of Leviticus chapter 8, verses 5. It says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. And you can hear the Jews in this moment of what Paul's saying here in the letter. You can hear them saying, but we obey the law. So what's your point? You can hear them responding in such a way. And Paul anticipates that response. He knows that response. But what he's saying, what he's saying is that, look, you're unable to be justified by the law. Don't you see the point? That, that, that your best intentions, your desire to follow the law, just results in you proving to yourself over and over again that you can't keep the law. You're, you're unable to keep the commandments. You lie and you cheat and you're deceitful and you have a wicked heart and you just continually break the law. He was showing them that it was impossible for them to live out the law perfectly. Paul is telling them that their faith is in the law and not in Christ. Now here's the thing about the law. The law was intended, the commandments, the, the Mosaic commandments, the Abrahamic commandments, the Levitical laws, all of those things were intended as a signpost to point the way to Jesus Christ. And what they did is instead of worshiping Jesus Christ, they worshiped at the signpost. Paul likens the law to a schoolmaster in Galatians chapter 3. He says, but, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Not by works, by faith. Not by the things we do, our best intentions, our religious adherences, but by faith. But instead of comprehending and opening their hearts, the Israelites are led to worship the law and to reject the worship of Jesus. Their allegiances were, were to, to establish their own traditions. They loved the law. They, they, they spent their times interpreting it. Can you imagine the Pharisees sitting around and spending time interpreting the laws? Conjecting about it? They even, they even wrote sub-laws and bylaws to support the laws, because the laws weren't sufficient apparently. So they had to write more things down to support and scaffold the law. And this is how they spent their free time. See, they were making their own way to righteousness and were completely lost in their sins. Think about it this way. You know, we just went down to the fall retreat down in Arkansas. And some of you, did anybody meet at the church here to head down there? Did anybody like in a group meet? Two of you. So Haley and uh, Brock, you guys rode down by yourselves today. No one else? There was, okay, there was, there was several of you who met here at the church. And, and so I, I imagine for a minute, like everybody gets together, someone's got the directions, someone's in charge, and they're saying, okay, look, We've got to head south on 71. 
Okay, if we're going to get to the Buffalo River, that's the direction that we've got to go. And so you're going to follow me out here on the 39th, and we'll get on to 71, and we'll head south, and we'll caravan together. But can you imagine for a moment if someone was just so zealous and excited about going to the Buffalo River that they weren't listening to the directions, and they get out here on the highway, instead of heading south, they head north. And all along the way, they ignore the signposts. They recognize them. They're thankful for them. But they keep going north. And you know what? Listen to me. That person will never find the Buffalo River. <laughs> I don't think you, had GC has ever been on a trip. You found it? I know you were there. You didn't do it. I just know that sometimes in the past, the, the directions, we've gotten lost a few times. Yeah. Ask James. Ask James. Ask him. What happened, James? What happened? James, James was zealous. <laughs> but you, do you see what I'm getting at? Look, if truth, truth for truth's sake is not good enough. No one cares about how much you know about the Bible if it does not produce in you faith. To follow Jesus Christ, no matter what the hindrance, no matter what the trial or the tribulation, no matter what the thing you come up against. See, this is what real truth does, and this is what real faith does, is it makes you zealous for righteousness in Christ. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Your best intentions lead you to death. And the sign posts, they, they held no value for the Jewish people because their zeal didn't lead them to belief. And this is our key point number two. Our best religious intentions cannot produce righteousness. Our best religious intentions cannot produce righteousness. Only faith in Jesus Christ can. Amen. All of the signposts that point to the Messiah are no good if you refuse the Messiah in And that's really where some of us are. Some of us in our lives, even right now, you're not, you're not a Jewish individual, okay? But you, you recognize that all the signposts have led you to faith, and yet you have not come to a place of faith. Everything in your life, the people that you've experienced, the truths that you've heard, the things that you've been taught, have pointed you towards Jesus Christ. Even in this moment, it's no, it's no you know, chance happening that you're here this morning. You're here with purpose. God brought you here this morning. I believe that. And even right now, you're hearing this gospel message, and you're faced with an opportunity to either come to a place of faith or not. The signposts are pointing you this way. Lastly, they were misinformed in salvation. They were misinformed in salvation. So I'll read, start in verse 4 again, and I'll, I'll read through verse 8. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And Paul says 
in response to them, even if you or even if you obeyed the law to a T, even if you held yourself to the high standard of the commandments in every way, you only just obeyed it outwardly. And it was not obedience of the heart. Your issue is a heart issue. Salvation is a heart issue. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30 and verse 11 here. And this sheds some light on it for us because we're in a position here where, where, where Moses is, is speaking to the nation and he says, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto, uh, unto us, that we may hear it and do it. See, the, the Israelites, what they wanted when they're talking to Moses here is they want someone to go up into heaven like the message and the word of God wasn't sufficient for them. They wanted something grander and something greater. And he says, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? But listen, but the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. So Paul likens obedience to responding in submission to the nearness of Christ. The one that they longed for way back in Deuteronomy. The thing that they long for, the very presence of God, who will go for us, who will bring us God, who will bring us bring Him into our presence. How is it that we can know Him? How is it that we can be in fellowship with Him if we can just know what was right? And thousands of years later, they're saying the same thing. And, the, and Christ, the very God, has come into the world, has died for their sins, and raised from the dead. And they're still saying, well, if someone could just go to heaven for us, or if someone could just go into the depths for us. And Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Key point number three. Righteousness is belief in Christ. And Christ is near to us. He's near to us. He's beckoning us. He's alive in this world. He came and he lived in our midst. His spirit is, is even now moving in this world, calling people to respond to the truth of his words, his words of old, the signposts. Look, 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 the signposts lead you to Christ. And if you want righteousness, if you want justification, if you want salvation this morning, this is found in the nearness of Christ who is with you even right now calling you to repentance. He's nigh unto you. See, the mystery is no longer a mystery. Salvation was no longer a Jewish enigma. It was no longer elite. The Messiah had revealed himself to all mankind and the truth is nigh unto you and me. And now Paul makes the mystery plain and he gives the key to salvation, the key to the purity of heart, key to righteousness. Right here, are you ready for it? Here, listen, listen. I preach this portion of scripture almost every message I've ever preached. And now I have the privilege of preaching expositorily. And here I find myself at this passage, the very passage that I love so much that it somehow finds itself in every message that I've ever preached. That Christ is near to you. 
And salvation may, may be known to you even today. Verse 9. This is the answer for Israel, and it's the answer for you and me. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek. Amen. There's the message right there for all of Romans. There's, there's no difference between black or white or old or young or Asian or Hispanic. We are all the same in God's eyes. And he has one thing for us, and it's this message of salvation. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Key point number four. Salvation begins with belief of the heart and results in a life of declaration. You know, in, in Hebrew culture, the heart was the whole man. We think of the heart as like this part of our body. Right? We, we, we relegate that term, this idea that like heart is like my, maybe my passions or my desires. Well, it's that. But listen, it's, it's the passions of the desires of the whole man. Every bit of me. The spirit within me. Okay? And what it's saying here is that it's with the heart that a man believes. You don't attain righteousness by doing good things, even in your best intentions. Even with the right heart attitude. The belief is of the heart. It's of the whole man. It's saying, you, you know what? My way is not the way. Christ, your way is the way. And I, and I gladly put myself down. I lay myself down on, on the altar of sacrifice. I give up myself that I might attain you, Lord. And with my heart, I believe on you. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And the result of salvation is always declaration. It's always declaration. It's always the proclamation of what God has done in your life. It begins with the heart and it ends with the mouth. So here are my questions for you in closing. What about your heart? And I know that in a room this big, there are bound to be several people who grew up in church. Grew up in church, and, and you know what? You, because you grew up in church, and you grew up with a form of zealousness, a form of godliness, you assume that you know Jesus Christ. It's somehow by osmosis, just by years of being in the church, that you know Jesus. And you know what? That's just the same as the nation of Israel. Amen. You don't get saved by osmosis. You get saved by repentance. By turning away. People who are zealous for spiritual things but have never truly submitted as a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Individuals who claim faith but practice self-will rather than God's will. And I'm asking you this morning, are you busy practicing self-will? Or are you practicing God's will? What, what if you had the courage this morning to say, I don't know if I'm saved. What if you had the courage this morning to say, I, I don't really know if I know Jesus Christ? What would you lose? 
would you lose? What, what could it hurt for you to admit that? What if you had the courage this morning that no matter what anybody else thought of you, you said, you know what, I am saved, but I know that my faith is weak. It's weak. What would it cost you to confess that to a brother or sister this morning? What would it cost you? What if you had the courage this morning to say, I know that I've grown up in, an, in, in church, but I don't know anything about the Bible. And I need help. <clears throat> what would be lost if you admitted that this morning? Let me, let, me, let me make this clear. The only thing you have to lose is pride. Yeah. And what has pride ever gotten you? But self-righteousness and religiosity and zeal without truth and heat without life. What has it gotten you? Listen to me this morning. We're going to do a very formal invitation. I know we already have one. But some of us right now, we need to recognize that we have hard questions to ask ourselves and the only thing we have to lose in asking ourselves these questions is our own pride. And so now it's time. It's time to lay something down. It's time to say, you know what? I don't think I know Christ. I need salvation. I need someone to pray with me. Well, come grab me. Grab Miles. Grab Brooke or Connor. Or grab someone you know who might have an answer for you from God's word. Do that this morning. And you might say to yourself, you know what? Uh, I've been struggling with sin. I, I, don't know, I don't know what it means to have true faith. I need someone to help me, and I need to confess that this morning. You need to grab someone and pray. Some of you need discipleship. Some of you need mentorship. Someone, some of you need someone to take the Bible and teach it to you for the first time. I know that you grew up in church. I know. It's okay. I did too until I discovered discipleship. I thought I, I knew all the stories. I thought I knew all the stories. And then someone showed me that I can know God's very words and that they're nigh unto me and that I can live in it and I can breathe it and I can consume it and it can belong to me. And some of you know you need that this morning. And so we're going to do an invitation and the worship team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in worship. And some of you, uh, whether you were up here already today or not, some of you need to come up here, we need to bow at the pew, you need to grab someone, and you need to work through this. I love you, I'm going to pray right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for courage for these people this morning, the ones that know that they have things that they need to confess to you. Lord, let us not be like the Israelites who hold on with hardness of heart, with zeal to old traditions and old ways and, and things of righteousness that we've established for ourselves. Lord, help us to confess those things, to die to them, and to lean into you because of what Christ has done. Because righteousness is found in him. Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, we ask that, that you would move in our midst, even right now, that Kaya would be more conformed to your image.